You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Beautiful night in Ottawa's Byward Market. The breeze is light. The wind is slightly cool. The temperature not too high and the sun's still out. And if you follow me on social media, you may have seen already that I decided this was the perfect time to treat myself to a beaver tail. Had to do it. Walking by, just I, I took a walk through the market after doing uh, finishing up the show prep early. And just the smell, that cinnamon, sugary goodness wafting over towards me. No lineup, which is a change. Because this time of year, as I may have mentioned, the the market area is filled with school tours, even at night. I walked out back of the building. The, The building fronts on George Street. The back entrance is out on York. And I walked out the back of the building and and over towards Tucker's Marketplace. That place just does killer business with bus tours of students coming in for dinner. And, they, you know, if they're like my daughter, they think it's the greatest place on earth because it's a buffet. I remember being 12, 13 years old and thinking buffet was the most amazing thing ever. So they were just streaming out of there. Truly wonderful. I'm not complaining about the traffic. It's not like last night didn't take me half an hour to get from the bunker to here. It was not bad at all tonight. So... I'm I'm a bit calmer. That and I don't have a counselor telling me again that I'm not evolved. Got an interesting email. And Doug is writing in to say that he disagrees with me on the Canada Pension Plan. Says, Brian, I normally agree with you on everything, but I disagree with you on the Canada Pension Plan. And so I wanted to read parts of, of Doug's email today and use that to try and explain part of the problem that I've said has been going on with how this CPP expansion has been sold to us. Reading Doug's email, I can tell he's he's not a young guy. He says, Brian, I heard your show yesterday about the CPP revisions. You and I usually agree on most things, but when you say you do not support CPP revisions, and I do... I have to ask, what am I not understanding? He goes on, I've been working for 44 years and I see myself working well into my 60s and maybe 70s because people today, uh, uh, I just cannot afford to retire. See, this CPP expansion doesn't do anything for you, Doug. Even though we've been sold on the idea that this is about helping seniors retire with dignity now. This has been what the sales pitch has been, not for just the last few weeks of this push, but for the last several years. I remember covering CPP expansion talks and debates going back to at least 2009, if not before. And it was always sold as we've got to help our seniors. Our seniors deserve to retire with dignity. Our seniors need more money. Well, if that's the case, expanding CPP is not the way to go. Because with the Canada Pension Plan, what you put in determines what you get out. And so if you have not put in 
a whole lot or you're not going to get a lot. But also, if they up the premiums now, that doesn't mean that you're going to get an, an increase now. This has kind of been hidden from us. It's been hidden from us because of the language, because of the rhetoric, because of the sales pitch to try and get people on board. And so we've got people like Doug thinking this could help him. He's not alone. I've heard from many people who think, well, this will help people that are retired now or people that are about to retire. Not necessarily so. want to play you a clip from Charles Souza, Ontario's finance minister. He's the guy that was about to uh, he's the guy that was about to be in charge of shepherding the Ontario pension plan through. He was the point person on it before we had a pensions minister who now gets to stay on despite not having a job to do anymore. But Charles Souza, after the agreement came out, told everybody that, well, this is actually about helping future generations. What we're doing today is not for any one of us on stage. It's very much for our children, and that is important. We recognize that what we've also done is much is in keeping with the Ontario Retirement Pension Plan that we propose to the extent that it's adequate and it's timely. Adequate and timely. I'm not sure it's either of those things. I want to read to you from what the actual agreement says. So there's an eight-line agreement. The ministers agree to the following. The income replacement level will be increased to one-third of income. The upper earnings limit will be targeted at $82,700 upon full Im- implementation in 2025. There will be a seven, gradual seven-year phase-in beginning on January 1, 2019, consisting of a five-year contribution rate phase-in below the yearly maximum pensionable earnings, followed by a two-year phase-in of the upper uh, earnings limit. So from 2019 through to 2023, 2024, they're going to increase how much we're going to be paying. That will be the rate phase-in. And then for the two years after that, they will increase from, what is it, about $55,000 now up to 82000 is the maximum pensionable earnings. And of that, you will get one-third of your income. They will also increase the working tax benefit to help low-income earners and tax deductibility for enhanced portion of employee CPP contributions. That's it. That's all. Is that going to allow you to retire like it's Freedom 55? Probably not. But do you remember those commercials? Those commercials from Freedom 55? Stephen, do we have that one? Remember, all, all, all through the 80s, all through the 90s, we were sold on a vision of retirement that we could all retire early and go live off in the tropics somewhere. Imagine you had the power to visit yourself in the future. Wow. Nice boat. We win a lottery or something? No, we just took some advice from a London Life representative. But we don't like life insurance. Freedom 55 is more than life insurance. Here, hold this. A financial program protects the family and the future. Imagine the freedom of Freedom 55. Talk to a London Life representative. How's the wife? Not married yet. Won't be long. You know what? I, I'm not denying that if you handle your money correctly, you can. But that's, that's if you handle 
your money correctly. You could retire early. You could have Freedom 55. But the Canada Pension Plan won't get you there, despite the sales pitch. Just reading from the news release that went out, so I read to the agreement, this is the news release that went out with it. It said, increase income replacement from one quarter to one third of pensionable earnings. This means that at maturity, a Canadian with $50,000 in constant earnings throughout their working life would receive a yearly pension benefit of around $16,000 instead of the $12,000 they would currently receive or $4,000 more per year. We're going to be getting $7 a month taken off of our paychecks starting in 2019 if we earn about 55000 They keep changing the income examples that they use, and I don't know why. But if you earn $55,000 a year, you're going to pay an extra $7 a month, and I believe that's currently the max. By 2025, it will be $34 a month or $400 a year. If you're close to retirement, none of this is going to matter to you. I'm 44. I have many years of work left in me. Even I will not see that much of a difference from this. But let me just explain something to everyone. We're told that this is to help the next generation coming in. And what have I advocated all along? That it's not CPP that we need to do. We need to do our own savings. And that that is better for all of us. It's better for you It's better for your family. You get to decide where the money goes for investments. You get to decide where the money goes when you pass on rather than the money being stuck with the government, as often happens. So Scotiabank on their website, and I just picked them because I happen to know about this tool. It's called the Retirement Savings Reality Check. And I went in and I said, okay, if someone's 22 years old when this starts, 22, they're just out of school, they get their first job. If they paid that $408 a month into their retirement plan and just that, not $408 a month, $408 a year, and that's all they put in, $408 a year, year after year, what would they accumulate? About $82,000 or roughly what the government's promising you by taking it and saving it for you. If you up that to just $500, obviously you're going to do that much better. This is not going to help anyone get out of poverty. We have programs for that. And if this is about helping low-income people, then let's do that. But this idea that it's going to help people like Doug, who's already been working for 44 years, no wonder Doug thinks that this is a good idea. People have been told that this will help seniors now. It won't. And for the millennial generation, the 22-year-olds out there that are just getting out of school, just starting to save, there are better vehicles for them than the Canada Pension Plan. But it comes down to what I always say. It comes down to world view. It comes down to whether you think government should do things or individuals should. And progressives always believe that the answer is more government. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't want to work my whole life to have the government keep a good portion of my retirement savings. And then, heaven forbid something happens to me, they keep it again. That's not good for me. It's not good for my family. It's not good for anybody except the government. 
and the bureaucrats that are going to be paid handsomely to look after this program. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Don't go away. We've got a lot coming up tonight. This is a packed program. That's about as slow as it's going to get. We've got Ben Shapiro coming up at 8. We've got Trump's speech from earlier today, my interview with Rana Ambrose. And shortly, Jeffrey Johnson from the Kingston Week Standard on online jihadi recruiting. What are we missing? Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Join the resistance on Facebook and Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. JK to the AB, is it going to happen? We'll take your calls on that. JK to the AB, do you think it's going to happen? What am I talking about? What's B-Lil rambling about? Why is he talking about himself in the third person? And who's JK and what's AB? JK, Jason Kenny, to AB, Alberta. This is the big rumor been going around the last little while. It's something Kenny has spoken about openly to a degree that he might be interested in going to provincial politics and uniting the right. Uniting the right in the province of Alberta. Because he says, if not, then what's going to happen is he fears the NDP will win another term and that the heart, the, the heartland of conservatism in Canada will see its entrepreneurial spirit crushed. So there is speculation that Kenny might leave federal politics, give up on the idea of running to be leader of the Conservative Party of Canada and run to be leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, which has been leaderless since Big Jim Prentice stepped down in May of 2015. If that happens... He would then try and merge with the Wild Rose or at least take all their support. I was speaking with a friend today who knows all these issues well and said, you know what, here's the big problem. The PCs, the progressive conservatives in Alberta, they're going to put up every roadblock they can to stop Jason Kenney because the PC party of Alberta is not actually all that conservative. In fact, there's many left-wingers inside the party. Now we've got progressive conservative party of Alberta president Kathleen O'Neill saying... You know what? We're not sure about this idea of merging with the Wild Rose. And our members, we did a recent survey. They're not interested. There was some interest in that survey to look at merging, but it wasn't the top pick. The top pick was rebuilding. And the top pick when we went to riding to riding was to rebuild. I think that if Kenny does go, he will be a formidable force in provincial politics in the province of Alberta. But he will have a big job ahead of him, including convincing PCers that being conservative is not a horrible thing. Uh, Jason Kenny to JT to Justin Trudeau. Justin Trudeau held a year-end news conference. I'm going to bring you more of the audio there. It was rather frustrating to sit through because he fielded questions on a variety of topics, some very good questions from uh, the media party today. I, I'll give them kudos when they deserve it. But did Trudeau actually answer them? No. I want to play you this question. It's from Bruce Cheadle at the Canadian Press. And it was the last question of a session-ending news conference. And I think it's an interesting question. And then listen to Trudeau's answer. We're probably not going to play the whole thing because he just rambles on without ever actually addressing the point put to him. Just follow up. You you responded a little bit to this, but uh, as the son of a prime minister, you probably had fewer illusions about this job than some coming in. But I'm wondering what you learned in your first eight months. Were there any revelations? 
You know, I've uh, been focused since uh, my very beginnings in Papineau uh, on uh, being a good MP, on listening to Canadians and uh, serving the folks who've uh, put me in this uh, position to be able to deliver. And we've built a team of people very much focused on exactly that, on demonstrating that a thoughtful, responsible, value-driven group of people who come together uh, to serve uh, the country that they love so well in a positive and respectful way uh, can very much achieve uh, meaningful things for Canadians. And on the three things that we were able to achieve uh, of significant impact on the lives of Canadians for blah, lowering class taxes blah, for the middle class, blah, uh, to blah, uh, helping families with the blah, cost of raising blah, their kids blah, with the new blah, Canada blah, Child blah. Benefit. Yeah, we can uh, fade that securing out. Pensions You'll notice he, you know, he's asked to be a little self-reflective, to answer, what have you learned that you didn't know coming into the job? And he talks about enhancing Canada Pension Plan, the Canada Child Benefit. Even reporters from the Red Star were yelling out to him, a whole bunch of people, because he walked away after that answer. But even uh, reporters from the Red Star yelling, what do you mean? You haven't learned anything while you've been in the job? We'll bring you more of that frustrating news conference later on, along with my interview with Rana Ambrose, Ben Shapiro coming up at the top of the next hour, uh, Donald Trump's big speech against Hillary, and up next, Jeffrey P. Johnson on Jihadis Online. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. The Internet and jihadis. It's a great combination, isn't it? They've figured out how to use social media networks from Twitter to Facebook, to Instagram, to WhatsApp, which most people in North America, if they ever used it, it was five, six years ago, nobody uses it now. But outside of North America, it's huge. It is, I think, close to a billion users. And it allows people to reach out with their message. All of these things are used along with old-fashioned websites from the, the cyber world, cyberspace. All of these things are used to great effect by the likes of ISIS and other radical groups to spread their message of hatred. How much does this contribute to homegrown terrorism? How much does this contribute to the likes of the rise of people like Omar Mateen? Or to use a Canadian example, maybe um, Ahmed Rouleau from the, the man that ran down Warrant Officer Patrice Vincent in Saint-Jean. Or Michael Zahaf Bibo. Is this part of what's happening? That's the subject of Jeffrey Johnson's latest column in the Kingston Week Standard. He joins me now on the line. Jeffrey, thanks again for the time. Thanks for having me, Brian. So you've been talking to people that study issues around genocide, human rights, uh, including um, uh, Kyle Matthews at Concordia University in Montreal. What are they telling you when it comes to how these organizations or people that believe in this ideology uh, use social media use the internet to spread their ideas and their hate. Yeah, exactly. They 
the internet has become a delivery system for uh, these religiously motivated uh, political ideologies. So I think first we should probably define our terms. So when we talk about um, Islamist ideology, we're, we're talking about Islamism. So it is an ideology and it's separate from the religion of Islam. So Islamism is basically an attempt to impose Islamic or Sharia law as the basis of government. So but it, it is closely tied to the Wahhabist, much of which comes out of Saudi Arabia and the Salafists, the types of people that were trying to take over Egypt um, after uh, Mubarak left. Yes, that's right. But you can have different branches. For example, yeah. the Iranian regime is Shia or Shiite, and it is a, an Islamist regime. It, it rules by Islamic law. Um, so in the Islamist worldview, there is no place for uh, laws passed by uh, elected representatives. The, they, they believe that Allah, the Muslim God, is sovereign. So they will not, uh, they will not uh, be governed by laws passed by men. Similarly, uh, they will not uh, adhere to uh, human rights doctrines. Um, they will not uh, follow the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And so they, they promote these ideas. Now, Kyle Matthews of Concordia University, he's the uh, Senior Deputy Director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies, told me that um, an Islamist is not necessarily a terrorist. An Islamist... Uh, just attempts to promote this ideology, often through peaceful means, but they seek to ultimately uh, impose Islamic law on everybody. Now, a jihadist is somebody who has been radicalized by this Islamist ideology. And the jihadist, as I uh, uh, am fond of saying, is the sharp end of the Islamist stick. So the jihadist will actually go out and do violent things. Now, in the past, we've seen... Um, the 9-11 attacks carried out by al-Qaeda on September 11, um, 2001, almost 3,000 people were killed on that horrific day. Now, that was an organized um, event. It was a terrorist attack, the worst terrorist attack in history. But now what we're seeing is homegrown terrorism, that is, uh, people that uh, live in North America, Canada, the United States, who are being radicalized via the Internet and sometimes carrying out lone wolf attacks. Now, Kyle Matthews did tell me that, you know, these individuals are often vulnerable, but there was also sometimes a network of other individuals steering this vulnerable individual towards this, this, this violent conclusion. So it is very, very dangerous. When I read your column, I was reminded of something that's not related to terrorism, not related to Islamism or jihadists at all, but a few years ago... Um, Carleton University student being encouraged through online discussions to commit suicide because there was somebody, they, they happen to be in the United States, I believe they were eventually convicted of this, uh, who was, I, I, I couldn't tell you their reasoning, wanted to help counsel this woman to go kill herself, and she did. Uh, it was guiding her online. It was prodding her. It was pushing her to the conclusion that he wanted, not that she wanted. And to me, I, I, there, there is a correlation. I know they're very different, but that idea of somebody online on the other side of the world going, okay, you're vulnerable or you're interested in this. I can get you to do what I want. I don't have to do it, but I can get you to do it. Absolutely. And often what it is, Brian, is you, you have someone who's either not devout 
or new to the religion, and they don't know enough about their own religion. So um, in the case of uh, uh, Momoa Kawaja, um, if you read the transcripts of the intelligence uh, reports, um, they make it pretty clear that he knew very little about Islam, and so that makes it pretty easy for other people to say, well, this is what the religion is, and this is what you have to do to prove that you're devout. Now the question is, what do we do to counter this? I asked Kyle Matthews that. So you've got this terrible ideology out there, and President Obama and Hillary Clinton both said that ideology, Islamist ideology, uh, played or probably played some sort of role in the horrific uh, Orlando attack when 49 people uh, were murdered and another 53 were wounded by this uh, maniac jihadist um, just because he, he didn't like gay people. And I've got to say, too, the Islamic State has institutionalized uh, homophobia. Uh, they, uh, they themselves execute gay people. So this is part and parcel of their ideology. There is no doubt about that. It's not a side issue. Yeah. It's central to it. I, I just the- want to interrupt for a second, Jeffrey, because I, I remember speaking to a gay colleague, a friend of mine, a few years ago now, and I asked him about that, traveling in the Middle East, and he actually, he said that um, several years ago in Morocco, and it may have changed now as this ideology spreads across North Africa, he said he felt as safe there as anywhere else because th- there was no issue. But they weren't under this Wahhabist, Salafist, jihadist mentality at that point. Like I said, it could have changed. I don't know the, the status of Morocco these days. So it's not necessarily every Muslim country that this is going to uh, be the case of throwing people off of rooftops. That's right. But if if you have an Islamist agenda that is um, taken hold, then this is going to happen. Last summer, last August, um, Jessica Stern, she's a a representative of uh, a LGBT rights group called Outright International. Jessica uh, addressed the United Nations Security Council, and, and she talked about the linkage between this uh, radical Islamist ideology and uh, violence targeting LGBT. Now, uh, Islamic State, ISIS, ISIL, Daesh, however you want to call it, have set up special courts to uh, prosecute and hand down death sentences for gay men. So they're, they're cutting people's heads off, they're shooting people, and they're throwing them off uh, rooftops. And they, they have very elaborate charges, but they basically, it's very hateful, they call them sodomites, and they actually advertise, Brian, these executions because they want to terrify people. According to um, uh, this group, um, as of last August, Islamic State had publicly executed 30 gay men. Now, it's probably much higher now. But she said that it is intertwined with the ideology, and people need to understand that. So it is a hateful ideology, and how do we, how do we, what should we be doing in North America to ensure that Muslims who live here Vulnerable people who live here or people who are converts to the religion don't become seduced by this this ideology. Because most immigrants who come here, Brian, just want to make you know a good life for their family and enjoy our rights and freedoms. But there are going to be some people, either uh, immigrants or uh, people that have converted to the religion here, are going to be susceptible. And I asked Kyle Matthews, what do we do? And he said that governments have to start supporting civil society groups and institutions that are dedicated to countering the Islamist message online. We've got to counter it online. We've got to start doing and, it. And yet, you know, I'm trying to remember the names of some of the groups. They've, they've split up a little bit, but people like Tarek Fatah, Rahil Raza, um, the Muslim Canadian Congress, all of these groups, 
they have asked for meetings over the years with governments. They can't get them. But if you're a bit more leaning towards the um, Wahhabist side, you're going to get a lot of meetings with governments. And they say it doesn't matter who's in power. That's who the bureaucrats go to. That's who the politicians go to. And the secular Muslim groups don't get the attention, don't get the support, and they feel frustrated and left out. Yeah, and that's a problem. But I think we have to look beyond just uh, special interest groups. I think, that, for example, that there's a, something Canada could be doing. Uh, the United States Department of State has a, a Twitter feed, and it's it's called Think Again, Turn Away. And it, it's they've got to expand it, but it's a good idea. So basically they, they're posting um, uh, stories about uh, failed jihad or the misery that jihad is causing or the terrible <laughs> life – the terrible life that uh, that jihadists themselves are facing. You know, the, the example um, two weeks ago where ISIS was uh, putting their own people in vats of acid because they had a mole within their organization. So this is because the, the narrative they're pushing, Brian, is that come join the Islamic State, it's nirvana, you can have a wife and, a, and, and prosperity, and it's great. And then you get over there and you're a grunt, you're cannon fodder, and they're torturing you. So, and, and furthermore... Um, the Islamic State put, holds their leaders up as if they're, they're prophets or as if they're great religious leaders. But the leader of the Islamic State, al-Baghdadi, um, is little more than the Al Capone of the jihadist movement. Um, last year, I wrote a piece on terrorist financing, and uh, I interviewed a, a Bay Street lawyer who took it upon herself to write a white paper about terrorist financing. And in this white paper, uh, she details how al-Baghdadi has, is amassing tens of millions of dollars in personal wealth. So one of these days, either al-Baghdadi or his family are going to, to just take off and live somewhere quietly and be nice and rich while all these other, you know, gullible, you know, young people have, you know, either given their lives or ended up in prison because they followed this, this, false, uh, this false ideology. And so I think if we really want to counter it, we have to actually get this message out. And you've got to do it on the Internet, you've got to do it on YouTube, and you've got to be forceful about it. And frankly, I don't think we're doing that in Canada. All right, some great ideas and a great column as always, Jeffrey. Thanks for the time. Thanks, Brian. You want to find Jeffrey's latest column? Well, check out my Twitter feed because I'm hitting retweet right now. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. More from that Trudeau News Conference when we come back. Ben Shapiro from Never Trump at the top of the hour. Then Trump himself. He's not joining me on air, but we've got a portion of his speech. Beyond the News. Beyond the News at CFRA.com. You're listening to the leader of the unofficial opposition, the rebel himself, Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Justin Trudeau spoke for half an hour, but did he say much? You know, sometimes you go to these political events and you ask a politician a question. You're in a scrum, you're at a news conference, and it might be even your question. You're excited and you put it to them, you're like, okay, all right, I got a story. And then you go back to your desk and you listen. You're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. I, I, I don't think they answered my question at all. Well, 
that was happening to an awful lot of reporters today. As I said, good questions from the media party folks today, but not a lot in the way of answers from Justin Trudeau. I want to play you a few examples, and we'll start with Lee Burchum from The Ottawa Citizen, because he led off the news conference asking about the whole CF-18 issue. What's going on with replacing our planes? Can you give us some details? I wanted to uh, ask you, uh, in the last uh, election, you committed to both not buying the F-35 as well as to hold an open competition. Can you update us on both of those commitments? Canadians expect uh, our government to uh, deliver the equipment uh, that our Canadian forces need to keep Canadians safe and indeed to protect uh, us while fulfilling our international commitments and to do so uh, in the right process and at the right price. Uh, as uh, many of you know, the uh, procurement process, uh, particularly for the jets, had been uh, uh, significantly uh, messy uh, over the past years. And uh, our ministers, uh, Minister Sajjan and Minister Foote, are working extremely hard uh, to ensure that we uh, deliver to our Canadian forces uh, the jets they need uh, in a responsible and in the right way. So as a follow-up, does that mean that you, there's no commitment to a, a competition now? There's been an awful lot of speculation in the media, uh, rumors going around about this or that. Uh, we are working very, very hard uh, and thoughtfully uh, to ensure that we uh, deliver uh, to our forces uh, the right jets, uh, the right way at the right price. Uh, that's what Canadians expect of us, and that's what we're going to be doing. All right. So he's being thoughtful. He's thoughtfully being thoughtful, but... Is he really telling you anything? I didn't learn anything about what's happening with the process to replace the Jets. Um, let's play David Aiken asking the Prime Minister about foreign affairs issues. I'm hoping you might fine-tune things a bit. Brian Mulroney, of course, one of your predecessors on Monday night, uh, I'm quoting him now. He said, uh, what we cannot do is talk about Canada being back in the world without making tangible commitments that will anchor our aspirations. He was speaking specifically in context of NATO. I wonder, could you perhaps, to folks like former Prime Minister Maroney and others, give some examples of what tangible commitments Canada might be expected to make to prove that we're back? Canada is a strong member of NATO, and I very much look forward to my visit in a few weeks where we will have uh, uh, more to say about how we will uh, continue to uh, <coughs> live up to uh, our responsibilities and, to, and, quite frankly, to the expectations that people have around Canada. Uh, but whether right. it was cut uh, that. strengthening... Cut that. I, he, he's asked, give us tangible examples. No. Same thing when David Lundgren from Reuters asked him about Brexit. Prime Minister, thank you for doing this. Uh, big vote in Britain tomorrow. As far as you're aware from your officials, have Canadian companies done enough to prepare for the risks of a possible Brexit? I, uh, uh, like uh, many folks, I will be uh, uh, watching attentively the outcome of, of that referendum, but it is uh, up to uh, the people of Great Britain to decide on their future. I've uh, made uh, no uh, bones about the fact that I always believe that we are stronger together, um, but uh, I will uh, allow, uh, uh, allow the people of Great Britain to make their own uh, determination. Tomorrow. All right. We, again, we can cut them there. He's asked, uh, have Canadian businesses done enough? Are they ready? Uh, it's up to the people of Great Britain. Canadian businesses have a lot at stake here. question was, are they ready for whatever risk comes? Unfortunately, he didn't answer many of the questions. 
Maybe we'll get to more of that again later on. Stick around. Ben Shapiro, who is the man behind, well, one of many people behind a Never Trump campaign, strong conservative, but says he can't vote for the Donald. We'll hear why next. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. Hillary Clinton may be the most corrupt person ever to seek the presidency of the United States. On that point, I I have to say it is tough to argue with Donald Trump as he says Hillary Clinton may be the most corrupt person to ever seek that office. And let's face facts, there's been some good and bad people that have sought the office of the president of the United States of America over the years. But Will our next guest quibble with Donald Trump's point? Ben Shapiro is a longtime conservative author, pundit, commentator, is a radio host. He'll soon be on. He tells me he's going on with Megyn Kelly in a few minutes just to make me jealous. He told me that. Uh, and uh, and he joins me now. Every man wants to be on TV with Megyn Kelly, Ben. Let, uh, come on. Let's be honest. Just two guys talking and thousands listening. Of course. Of course. I mean, who else would you rather be on TV with? So. Uh, as far as the uh, as far as Trump's speech, no, I don't argue with any of that stuff. I mean, why would I possibly argue with the critique of the most corrupt politician running for president in American history? I mean, there, there's no there's no doubt about it. His speech today was really good. His speech when he was on teleprompter was good. Teleprompter Trump is significantly better than than unscripted Donald. You know, it, and good for him. It's now been a solid eight hours since he gave that speech, and he still hasn't said anything dumb. So. <laughs> That's a real stretch of time for him. So that's, that's exciting. I mean, it, it, it would be good for him to allow a, a headline about Hillary Clinton that he issued to dominate the news for for, the, for at least more than five minutes, because it seems like every time he does something good, he immediately follows it up with something incredibly stupid. So I'm, I'm glad that thus far he's not done that, of course. Which is a, a problem for any politician. I mean, I, I was playing clips of our esteemed prime minister, Justin Trudeau, earlier, and yeah. Uh, his news conference today for the end of the parliamentary session where he didn't actually say anything. He's asked question after question and gave out pablum. Why? Because he was on script. He did no, not. Bernie Sanders over there. Yeah, yeah. he did not go off script and, and he just stayed to what his handlers told him to say. You know, that's good for him. It's bad for us. He, the only thing that we can talk about is what he wanted us to talk about that day because he didn't give you anything else. But what Trump has done too many times is said something good on policy or about Hillary Clinton, then he turns around and says something stupid. He steps in it, and then that gives the media a chance to just talk about that. Right, exactly, and, that, and that's the pattern with Donald Trump. And the, the fact, my, my, my ambivalence about Donald Trump has nothing to do with him attacking Hillary Clinton. It's, it's the one thing about him that I actually like. It's, it's everything else about Donald Trump that I find unpalatable. I, I, and, I'm going to quibble with your use of the word ambivalence about Donald Trump. You yeah, have no, taken ambivalent is, is a little bit is a little bit too too tepid. You, you, know, you, I'm, I'm, you've taken a strong stand against the Donald and have for some time. Uh, you and I, I believe, we're both cruise guys. Yeah. Uh, but see, I don't have a vote, so I guess there's less at stake in this for me <laughs> than there is for you. But I look well, at Hillary you. Clinton and I well, I mean, look, either way, it's going to mess with our economy. But I look at Hillary Clinton and I think, how do you stop her? This is a woman who gets a pass from the media, is not questioned in the same way that Donald Trump is. Uh, she hasn't held a press conference in 200 days. Uh, and how do you stop her from taking the White House 
by default. And the only viable option right now is Donald Trump. So how do you, as an American conservative who dislikes the Clintons the way you do, not turn around and say, I will hold my nose and I'll vote for Trump? So I understand the position, I'll hold my nose and I'll vote for Trump. The reason that I'm not doing it is because too many members of the conservative movement aren't taking that position. They're instead taking the position that Donald Trump is now the leader of conservatism, that Donald Trump redefines what conservatism amounts to. The, the, the kind of analogy that I give is Hillary Clinton's – and let's put this way. Barack Obama took the country from 30 to 90 toward a cliff. He put the pedal to the metal. Hillary Clinton will take it from 90 to 120 toward a cliff. Trump will take it from 90 to 100 because he's not a conservative. He'll take it from 90 to 100 toward a cliff. But he, in the process, if he's president, he'll rip out the reverse gear. So there's no possibility of retaking the Republican Party for conservatism. The Republican Party is now an outpost of European-style national, nationalist populism. And that's not something that I think really provides any hope for the future of the country. I think that's a slower boat to hell, but it's still a boat to hell. Um, that's, that's my main contention here with regard to, with regard to right. Trump. And, and I'm seeing it in real time. I mean, I'm seeing people who are beginning to take basic principles of what American government was supposed to be, basic notions of, of what the Constitution stands for, and throw them aside because Donald Trump is their guy now, and they can't deal with the cognitive dissonance of saying, I'm voting for the second worst option. So instead what they're doing is they're, they're tut-tutting all of the flaws in Trump, and they're, and they're perverting their principles in order to do so. Which is a sad day. I love your analogy, though, of driving towards the cliff, because I remember being on the air with you at Sun News for the 2012 uh, presidential election, and we were talking about uh, Americans in re-electing Barack Obama decided that, that Thelma and Louise had it right, and they were going to drive over the cliff. Um, but Donald Trump as national populist, there's an awful lot of people. I hear it up here as well. I get people calling in and saying, we need someone like Trump. We need someone that tells it like it is. Uh, we need the strong man. Explain why you've got concerns with this national populism mentality that Trump has, because he, he's not a conservative. I heard a commentator on CNN today again talking about how the conservative base and, and, and Donald Trump, he's not a conservative at all. What is it about this national populism that bothers you? Well, I mean, what bothers me is nationalism stripped of the re the reason for being a nationalist is is simply is simply jingoism and and leads to some pretty bad things historically. I mean, if you just say my country is great just because it's my country, not because it stands for better principles, then you, that that's not in a, a worthwhile ideology. Populism is is a is a tool and it can be used by the left or it can be used by the right. But populism is basically just the notion that if I can swing a large portion of the population behind me without regard to what's the policy, then I deserve to win. And that's not something that, that I, I believe in. I mean, I believe in, in basic principles. I believe in freedom and free trade and limited government. And I know that people think that this stuff is passe because Trump won the nomination. But the reality is that all politics is coalitional. All politics is, is a coalition. And these national populists, the people who are in Trump camp, you know, before, a lot of them were showing up for people like Mitt Romney. And they were showing up for people like John McCain. A lot of them weren't, though. Um, and the idea, the, the question is who's going to drive the car. We're, we're all going to be in the car together, presumably, going off this cliff. The question is who's going to be driving this thing. And I'm not willing to grant Donald Trump control of the wheel. He's a wild man. He's not somebody who has any centralizing principles other than his own self-aggrandizement. He's just as likely to slap the right as he is to slap the left. And I'm glad when, he, when he's a hammer hitting a nail. I mean, I've, said, I've literally been saying this for a year. Donald Trump is a hammer in search of a nail. Sometimes he gets a nail. Today, for example, he pounded a nail in, in the form of Hillary Clinton. Sometimes, however, Donald Trump hits a puppy, and Donald Trump hits a puppy far too often for my liking. And not only that, I think that 
you know, if Donald Trump, one of two things is going to happen here. Either Donald Trump is going to win or he's going to lose. If he wins, then republicanism becomes national populism, and national populism is a big government philosophy that simply says that we have to shut our borders. That's all national populism basically is. That's, that's what. And, and, and as a Canadian who is uh, whose economy is reliant on trade with your country, that's a problem for us because oh, it's, it's he, a huge he, problem. Uh, he keeps talking about economy. ripping. He's guaranteeing, it. he's guaranteeing a major recession in the United States with his idiotic trade policies that he that he talks. I mean, today, today, Donald Trump said. In the interview with Nora O'Donnell on CBS, that he would, that he just wants to go to the rest of the world and renegotiate our debt. I mean, I'm, this is this is economic literacy of the it, highest order. It and sounds to do like that Greece. In the name of conservatism is is really quite sickening. For that to become the Republican Party is is not good policy. That's that's possibility number one if he wins. Possibility number two is he gets shellacked. I don't think there's a close election. If if he if he gets shellacked. And all these conservatives who said that it was okay to insult the disabled and it was okay to insult veterans and it was okay to to yell about Mexican judges and it was okay to talk about banning all Muslims <laughs> across the world and it was okay to take every possible position on everything ranging from abortion to foreign policy. All these people are going to be sitting around in four years trying to make the case again that you ought to vote for candidates that they back and everybody is rightly going to turn to the people who backed Trump and they're going to say – well, wait a second. I mean, you, you're, you're now saying that we need to stand by principle and not by personality. Well, you guys stood by personality instead of principle. I know you were on with, uh, with Glenn Beck yesterday. Um, I know that Glenn has walked away from, from Trump because he said too often, and, and he walked away from Trump before the Never Trump movement was going, I think. Uh, you could tell he was going in that direction, but he, he has been saying for a while now, I can't just say back this guy, back whoever it is, because they're the Republican nominee. He said he did that with McCain. He, you know, even though he didn't like McCain, he did it with Romney. Even though before that he'd ridiculed Romney as vote for him, he's not the communist. Uh, do you think that there's a lot of people like that now in the conservative movement, or are you in the minority? Because I, I look at a lot of people swallowing themselves whole to back Trump. Well, I'm certainly in the minority. I mean, I, I have no doubt about that, and I have no illusions that, that we're some sort of broad movement. I mean, I, I, never Trump is just a statement of what I personally will do. And as I said before, and I've, I've said it probably a thousand times at this point, if you're somebody who says, I need to back Trump to stop Hillary, but I think he's a crap show, I think he's terrible, I, that's a position I fully respect. I mean, I, I don't agree with you. I think that you know, your math is off, but I at least respect the position. When I, well, the, the position I don't respect, and this is the one that I'm seeing adopted by a lot of people, is People convincing themselves that Donald Trump is a decent, good, kind, normal candidate, and he's none of these things. And it's going to come back to haunt them because in four years, when they say about whoever the next candidate, let's say Hillary wins, in four years when they come back with another candidate running against Hillary, and they say Hillary is deeply dishonest, you know, she hides things, she's cruel to people, she says terrible things. Everybody's just going to turn around and they're going to run against Trump again. They're going to say, "Well, Donald, you, you were happy to back Donald Trump when he was your guy, you know." So, so what are you coming back at us about Hillary's corruption? And this is the problem, by the way, with Trump's speech today. Trump's speech, in and of itself, is fine, except for all of his protectionist nonsense. The, the problem with Trump's speech is that every point he makes about Hillary Clinton is almost as true or more true than it's about Hillary Clinton. When he says Hillary Clinton is somebody who who works in crony capitalist politics. He admits to giving money to both sides specifically to buy people when he this says that true. Hillary Clinton has a, has a scattershot foreign policy, and obviously he's not quite that articulate. But when he says that Hillary Clinton has a scattershot foreign policy that has led to the, the world being on fire, the fact is that Donald Trump took at least half the positions that Hillary Clinton has taken on foreign policy. The only one of which I'm aware that he openly disagreed at the time 
was on the Libya war. When it comes to Syria, still nobody knows exactly what his policy would be. He certainly didn't buck against Hillary Clinton two years ago when he was asked about her. He said she was a terrific Secretary of State. So it, it's very weird to, to be in a position where you agree with all the attacks that each candidate is making on the other. And when Hillary Clinton attacks Trump, I can't disagree with her because she is saying factual things. When Trump is attacking Hillary, I can't disagree with him <laughs> because he's saying factual things. The negative campaigning, I mean, it, it, it's the weirdest campaign ever because all the negative campaigning is true and none of the positive campaigning is. When both candidates talk about the wonderful things about themselves, it's all nonsense. When they talk about all the horrible things about their opponent, all of that is 100% true. Ben, great talking as always. Enjoy uh, enjoy being on with Megan. We'll, uh, we'll chat again soon. Thank you in a bit. Ben Shapiro, conservative author, commentator, all-around good guy. Up next, we'll bring you some of Donald Trump's speech. We couldn't get Donald himself. He, he's not answering the phone. I, I don't know why. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Drop me a line. Beyond the News at CFRA.com. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. I went juicing with Ronna Ambrose. That's right. We made some juice. We talked about politics. That's coming up at the bottom of the hour. Don't miss it. You want to check out that interview. Uh, it's casual. It's relaxed. It's insightful. I think she answered the questions better than JT did earlier today. Well, you heard from Ben Shapiro and why he's never Trump. Now, don't think for a second Ben's not conservative. He absolutely is, has been probably from conception. And it's not easy being a conservative in Hollywood. His books are great, his columns are great, but he just doesn't believe in Trump. Well, what about Trump himself? Well, Donald believes in Donald, but what does he think about Hillary? Finally, someone is saying what needs to be said about Hillary Clinton. Here's part of Donald Trump's speech from earlier today. In other words, we have to protect our country. I have decided and visited cities and towns across America, all across America, and seen the devastation caused by the trade policies of Bill and Hillary Clinton, and its total devastation, all over New York, all over Pennsylvania, all over New England, all over the country. Hillary Clinton supported Bill Clinton's disastrous and totally disastrous NAFTA just like she supported China's entrance into the World Trade Organization. We've lost nearly one-third of our manufacturing jobs since these two Hillary-backed agreements were signed, among the worst we've ever done, among the most destructive agreements we've ever signed. Our trade deficit with China soared 40% during Hillary Clinton's time as Secretary of State. A disgraceful performance for which she should not be congratulated, but rather scorned. Then she left China. So true. Then she left China, and what happened is billions and billions of dollars in our intellectual property and China has taken it. And it's a crime which is continuously going on, and it's going on right now. They are stealing billions and billions of dollars of our intellectual property. Hillary Clinton gave China millions of jobs, and our best jobs, and effectively let China completely rebuild itself. In return, Hillary Clinton got rich. The book Clinton Cash by Peter Schweitzer 
documents how Bill and Hillary used the State Department to enrich their family and America's and at America's expense. She gets rich making you poor. Here is a quote from the book. At the center of U.S. policy toward China was Hillary Clinton. At this critical time for U.S.-China relations, Bill Clinton gave her a number of speeches that were underwritten by the Chinese government and its supporters. These funds were paid to the Clinton's bank account directly while Hillary was negotiating with China on behalf of the United States. Tell me, folks, does that work? She Part sold out of Donald Trump's speech about Hillary Clinton. Finally, somebody telling the truth on a national stage where the media has to pay attention when it comes to the Clintons. We'll bring you more of that speech in a little bit. I'm Brian Lilly. Up next, juicing with Ms. Ambrose and getting answers on issues related to policies, future of the Conservative Party. You don't want to miss it. That's next. Beyond the News at CFRA.com. This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Follow the outrage on Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Give it to me, I'm worth it. Baby, I'm worth it. Uh-huh. Well, instead of a traditional stage year-end interview, I decided if we're going to sit down and get to know Rana Ambrose, uh, maybe standing in the kitchen would be better. Every party ends up in the kitchen eventually, even the Conservative Party. It's here we true. are. And we're drinking this odd concoction that yeah, you make. It's celery, kale, grapes, green apples, chili peppers, and ginger. So it's spicy, oh. yet sweet and full of goodness. There's a lot of hot chili peppers in there. I know. Don't, I know. I've been watching, waiting for you to start sweating uh-huh. while we do this interview. <laughs> so this, this is what keeps you on the go, though. You know what? I love it. And I have it for breakfast and lunch, and then I eat a normal meal. Uh, for dinner, but I can take it to all my meetings. I can drink it in the car. I can do it on the go. So I get all kinds of nutrients and uh, good good protein in this uh, shake, and it's good. I, good I, I for you. Fi- I do find it weird but tasty. Yeah, I know. I told you. <laughs> I know. There's a lot tasty. of chili peppers in here and ginger. You've been interim leader since November, so mm-hmm. let me do the quick math. Six plus two, eight yeah, months. Already. How are you enjoying it? Well, almost it. nine months. I know. It's been great. It's been great. I love it. I love it. I, I feel such a privilege getting to work with and lead this team of men and women who are, they are motivated. They are you know, committed conservatives. They're, they love their country. I, I feel so proud to get to work with them. You were around for the last time the conservatives were in opposition. Yeah. Some of your colleagues were not. Some of them are brand new, but some of them were only ever in government, only ever in cabinet. Uh, I'm true. guessing that's an adjustment for the whole team. It is. I mean, it was actually kind of funny because some of the some of the people who had only ever been a minister, you know, would call up my office and say, um, "Can somebody help write a, you know write this speech for me?" I'm like, "Guess what? You're <laughs> writing it." Because <laughs> oh, I mean, everything changes in opposition. You have way less resources. And it's a lot about self-sufficiency. So yes, people are writing their own speeches and they're learning uh, to do their own research and rely on a lot of outside stakeholders for support to learn about things. But you know what, that's good because it means getting outside of your comfort zone, reconnecting with a lot of our constituencies, uh, conservative stakeholders, the industry, business people, constituents, I think it's great. Um, I actually think it's reinvigorated our caucus, and it's given our men and women 
I just, I, I really see uh, a kind of a, uh, uh, I guess, a, a, a renewed sense of conviction in the conservative ide ideology that they believe in, and I think, I, I think it's been really good for us. Well, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to comment on the leadership race, but I'm impressed with a lot of what I'm hearing coming out of that in as the candidates and prospective candidates yeah. step forward and, and start talking about policy in very basic terms. Uh, before we get into how the current government's doing, let's stick with your party. You guys are still out fundraising, the Liberals, even crazy. in opposition. Yeah, yet, I know. We had a best. very strong convention at the end of May. We had the best fundraising quarter in the history of our party, and it's the first time we've been out of government in 10 years. That is phenomenal. I don't, I'm sure no one has done that in the history of politics. So what that shows is that our people... Are, are engaged, they're supportive of what we're doing. We, and it also shows that they understand that our job as opposition is equally as important as when we are in government. And being a conservative voice, whether you're in government or in opposition, matters to those who care about issues like smaller government, lower taxes, you know, strong public safety. And, and that makes me so glad to know that our members are still proud of the work we're doing. And even though we're not in government, that we have a really important voice in the national conversation. I know that uh, people have talked about, well, the Liberals have sunny ways, and so you guys have to do what you do with a smile and a different tone, but you know, my Liberal friend Warren Kinsella loves to say opposition's job is to oppose, and yeah. he looks back to when he was working in opposition under Jean Chrétien, and, the, and he just said, no, we oppose. Is that the tact you take, or are you looking to build bridges, or... How do you view the job that you're doing? Well, Canadians said they wanted a different tone from us, and I think we delivered on that. I really do. People say they've changed their tone, but does that mean, mean that we've been less tough on the opposition? No. We came out swinging, and we've been tough on the Liberals. We've held them to account on pulling out our CF-18s in the fight against ISIS. We held them to account on their complete lack of transparency in their first budget, the fact that they blew their promise for a balanced budget, the fact they blew their promise on their commitment to keep deficits to a minimum of $10 billion. They, we've kept, held them to account on raising taxes on Canadians. We've held them to account on their naive, I think dangerously naive attitude about ISIS with our opposition motion on calling ISIS actions a genocide, which the Liberals refuse to support. So listen, we've been tough, but we've been respectful. We've even approached some of our work with a sense of humor. I think the opposition... I've seen a lot of that in question period. It's yeah. been good. And I've encouraged our guys to be respectful, be tough, be funny, but you can be just as effective. And we've been a very effective opposition. I want to ask you about the genocide thing in a moment. That is very important to me. It's very important to the, the viewers, the, the listeners. People are upset about this. Of but course. is anything sticking to the current government? seems like it's a honeymoon period. I mean... I'm going to raise a glass of juice. Yeah. You guys have. Well, we did the A-tip, and you guys saw our story and asked about it in question period. A minister expensing, a minister's staffer expensing $17 for a glass of juice. That used to be a horrible thing that would, yeah. you know, calls for ministers to resign over that. And, and they just laugh it and skate by it and, and make jokes about it. So does anything they, stick to these guys? You know what? People expect liberals to expense a $17 glass of juice. And they don't expect conservatives to do that. And listen, we, you know, we should be held to account, but every public office holder should be held to account when they're wasting taxpayer money, taxpayers' money like that. The problem is the liberals' approach to government is that they're entitled. 
They are uh, entitled to Mr. taxpayer Selke, money. A quarter million dollars on furniture. Almost a million dollars on furniture. And they explained that away with we needed to spend it because we had a bunch of staff we needed to house as if there isn't enough office space in Ottawa uh, to put up some new bureaucrats. So the problem is this is actually what people expect of the Liberals. Um, and it will take a lot more than that for Liberal voters to think these guys are doing a bad job. But I can tell you every Conservative in this country and everyone who believes in respecting taxpayer dollars is not impressed with that kind of attitude. So it's important that we as a Conservative voice and the voice of taxpayers hold them to account every single time they spend money like that. We are relaxing in the kitchen, sitting with, standing with Ron Ambrose. I'm leaning. It might be a bit of a height difference if you haven't noticed. Um, on the genocide front, yeah. your motion, you were able to get the, the New Democrats and the Bloc to vote with you yeah. in saying that what's happening to Christians, Yazidis, and Shia Muslims is genocide. It and, is. And the liber but the Liberals say, until the United Nations tells us that it's genocide, mm -hmm. we won't call it that. How do you react to that. I mean, that, that enrages me that they say, well, this is a legal question, so we can't comment yeah. on it. You and everyone else in yeah. Parliament are legislators that pass laws. Right. That seems lost on them. You know what? It, it was disgusting. I mean, it was an embarrassing display that the Liberals... I mean, Canada has always well, been... Kudos, though, to the four Liberals, uh, House Father, Absolutely. Erskine Smith, uh, yeah. Ludwig, and uh, Reshnevsky. For, for coming forward and, yep. and, and standing with you guys. And interestingly, one of them is Ukrainian, one of them is, a, is Jewish, um, and one of them uh, you know, has always taken minority rights very seriously. So we've got people that have a principled stance, maybe from their background or because they've been engaged in their own communities, they know what genocide looks like, mm -hmm. and they've been active on those issues in their own communities. And good for them for taking a stand, but it was, it was an absolute dark spot on Canada. I mean, Canada's always been the country that's out front defending minority rights in the world. And pretty much every House of Parliament in the Western democratic world has called what's happening to the Christians, whether they're Assyrians or Yazidis or Shia Muslims, have called it a genocide. And these guys couldn't do it. Yep. And they say it's a legal question. It's not a legal question. First of all, it's an issue of fact. But the other thing is, as legislators and public officials, it's our job to actually stand up and call things what they are and take a leadership role. And this is an issue, to me, it's an issue of moral clarity and that they weren't able to discern that, that they have a role to play in being Canada should be a leader on these issues. So it wasn't until some, well, it wasn't even the first report from the United Nations that called this genocide. There's been subsequent there's been consecutive reports around the genocide. But, but two days after right. your vote. There was a 40-page report that said it's genocide it's against genocide. Yazidis. So they say yes to Yazidis, but no to Christians and Shias. Right. And so, you know what? It's, it's well, a lack of principled foreign policy, and it's they, a lack of leadership. They like to say Canada's back, and they keep going down to the United Nations right. and saying Canada's back. Well, if we no. have to wait for the United Nations to tell us what our mm -hmm. policy is, is Canada back, or is Canada now outsourcing foreign policy to Geneva and New York. I think that's what it means. I think it means Canada's back letting the United Nations make our decisions. You know, and it's the same issue, you know, in the, in the past when they, when, you know, the Liberals were so, uh, lacked so much clarity on their position with Israel. I mean, I think, and, and now cozying up to, to uh, Russia, cozying up to Iran, mm -hmm. when there's a Canadian, a woman who's a professor of, of women's studies and 
women's rights, and she's not even an activist, as far as, from what I understand, she just talks about the rights of women in Iran, and she's now been jailed in Iran. And we're at the same time talking about warming up relations with Iran. So, you know, I, it worries me that, that the Liberals talk about Canada being back. Really what it is, I think, is we're back now to deferring to the United Nations for all of our approach to, to foreign policy. And that's really too bad, because Canada has, has, I think, under Mr. Harper, had a very good reputation on being principled on foreign policy. All right, that's the first part of my interview with Conservative leader Ronna Ambrose. Don't go away. When we come back, a little more juicing, a little more of B-Lil sweating as he drinks the juice with the hot peppers in it, and a little more conversation on politics and policy with the Honorable Ron Ambrose. is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Get some FaceTime with Brian. Join the resistance at facebook.com slash 580 CFRA. So I dropped by Stornoway. That's the official residence of Canada's leader of the opposition. Not my first time there, not even my second. But um, actually, it's my second time to interview Ron Ambrose. We did one of these at Christmas. Very formal, sitting down in nice chairs in a nice living room, suit and tie on. This time we went casual. We stood in the kitchen, made up some of Rana's famous juice, drank it, and talked policy. Um, this is Bill Morneau from 2012, the real retirement. How people change. And, uh, I mean, he says that all these fears about a pension crisis are overblown. He says, yeah. right, the first chapter is called Crisis, What Crisis? Now he's got this deal for an enhanced Canada pension plan. I don't think most Canadians would object to helping those in need, mm-hmm. but those at the bottom aren't going to be helped by an enhanced CPP. No, they're not. They're actually going to hurt the people who need money in their pockets the most. So it's a tax on Canadians. We still don't know how much it's going to be. We just know it'll be thousands of dollars a year taken off the paychecks of Canadians. Well, at the same time, they cancelled tax-free savings accounts, or half of what we used to be able to invest And we know from statistics that actually lower income and even students were investing in tax-free savings accounts. Mm -hmm. So they remove private savings vehicles that are beneficial in exchange for a CPP enhancement, which really is a tax on the 100% of Canadians, when, as you say, the problem is actually um, specific to a certain part of the population. And their argument is, well, millennials just don't save, so we have to force them to save. Well... You know what? You don't actually make a CPP contribution unless you have a job. The problem that millennials are facing is a government that is going to put us in the poorhouse, tax businesses and tax job creators to the point where actually less jobs will be created, less entrepreneurs will want to start a new business. And so it's the job issue that I'm concerned about. Millennials won't have to worry about retirement because they're, they're going to have to worry about having a job before they ever pay any CPP. Is it simply um, a difference in viewpoint? Um, the government that you were part of brought in the, the TFSA, increased the TFSA, uh, worked with small businesses to bring about the pooled mm-hmm. pension plans that, that would allow a small business to offer these things. You had a viewpoint of 
you can do this, Canadians can do this, they have a viewpoint of, we have to do it for mm -hmm. you. It's always that way, right? I mean, the Liberals love to talk about that they like Canadians, but they really don't have a lot of faith in them. At the end of the day, their ideology is the government will fix everything for you. And what that does is it, it actually, um, you know, it, what I see when I look at that is it means that you don't trust Canadians. You know, we see the ingenuity in every single Canadian and we put our trust in them. We let them keep some of their own money so they can actually start a new business. They can be an entrepreneur. They're the ones that are going to come up with the next greatest invention. It's not going to be governments. Governments don't create jobs. Canadians do. And if we suck all of that incentive away from every individual Canadian, we take away all their economic freedom to the point where they don't have money to invest in a new business. There's no incentive to start a new business. Who's going to create the jobs for the next generation? Who's going to create the jobs for the millennials? So I worry about it because with the liberals, it's all about, you know, every answer to every problem is more government, more taxes, more regulation, more red tape. And, uh, and that's not the solution. Bigger bureaucracy is not the solution. What comes with that is inevitably more waste. And it's going to cost our millennials more and more money. And there'll be less job creation, less economic freedom, less individual liberty. So I think, you know, that's a message for young people is that this government is going to burden you to the point where there will be a lot less freedom for you, even on, even on the sharing economy. I mean, the sharing economy is really about the ultimate economic freedom. It's less regulation. It's a platform where anyone that has a computer but can start a business. You guys put this place up on Airbnb. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but the sharing economy is a perfect example. And what are the liberals talking about doing? You know, whether it's Mayor Gregor Robertson in Vancouver who wants to shut down or regulate Airbnb so people can't actually make money off their own possessions and their own mm -hmm. assets, or the Liberal government starting to say, well, how do we regulate this new economy like, the, like the, the conventional economy? Well, here's a thought. Why don't you regulate the conventional economy less? Why don't you use the sharing economy as an opportunity to streamline regulations and make all businesses regulated less and maybe there will be an opportunity for more businesses to flourish but their immediate reaction is overtax and overregulate overburden and you know we see what happens when we constrain personal liberty and economic freedom all you have to do is look at Europe Venezuela Venezuela I mean it's, it's so this is the track they're going down and so that's why I think it's really important that in 2019 we have to have a strong alternative to the Liberals Life isn't all about politics. Let me ask you before we're done. Uh, you're heading out of Ottawa soon. You're going to head back home to Edmonton. You're going to yep. take in the barbecue circuit, Stampede. What, what does the summer look like for Ron? Well, I'm going to be, you know, JP is a rodeo guy, so yeah. he knows everybody at the rodeo. So we will go to the Stampede and say hi to the Cowboys. I'll be in Edmonton uh, visiting constituents. Um, I'm going to be out and about. I'm heading to Quebec this week. I'm going to be in Quebec for four days out in the regions. Uh, we're going to be in Atlanta, Canada. We're going to be everywhere. So I'm going to just be out saying hi to conservatives and thanking them for their support. We have a great party, and they are supportive of our MPs, men and women from across this country. And I want to thank them for supporting each and every one of our members of parliament. And thank them for supporting Mr. Harper for all these years and to continue supporting our party. They've been fantastic to us. Um, and I want to tell them that we're going to keep working hard for them and be the voice of conservatism, be the voice of taxpayers. And I also want to go into the regions where we lost seats and earn back the trust of those people because 
Um, in Atlantic Canada, we didn't win any seats. And when I go there and I talk to people, I know our message resonates with them. I know they want to see better job opportunities, less taxes, a better, safer environment for their kids. And so we need to earn back their trust. And that's what we do when we go into regions like that is, is really make the case and ask people to have faith in us um, and to hopefully look to us in 2019. All right, Ron Ambrose, thanks so much. And Cheers. all the best for the summer. You too. <laughs> and with that, we drank more juice. You want to know what the juice tastes like? Well, you can call in after the news at the top of the hour. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. I, I will talk about the juice if you want, but seriously, I want to contrast and compare what you've heard of Justin Trudeau versus Rana Ambrose. Your calls after the break, and if you like the interview, share it on Facebook. It'll be on my page shortly, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. In a world gone mad, there must be resistance. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. All right, time to contrast and compare. Contrast and compare between Justin Trudeau and Ronna Ambrose. I'm not talking about their looks. They're both attractive people. We've discussed this on air. I don't want to get myself into any more trouble with JP. Tough little rodeo guy. I, like, I don't want any more trouble there. And enough people wax poetic about uh, Trudeau's looks that I don't have to. But I'm talking about the substance of what they have to say. I mean, let's play, um, we'll just play the beginning of Trudeau on Brexit again, okay? And then we'll play Rana Ambrose. So we're compare and contrast on issues of substance. Prime Minister, thank you for doing this. A uh, big vote in Britain tomorrow. As far as you're aware from your officials, have Canadian companies done enough to prepare for the risks of a possible Brexit? I, uh, uh, like uh, many folks, I will be uh, uh, watching attentively the outcome of, of that referendum, but it is uh, up to uh, the people of Great Britain to decide on their future. I've uh, made uh, no uh, bones about the fact that I always believe that we are stronger together, um, but uh, I will uh, allow, uh, uh, allow the people of Great Britain to make their own determination tomorrow. Obviously. Secondly, on that point, what are your officials doing to prepare for Brexit and the possible damage it could do to the implementation of CETA, which of course is a big, a big file for you? We are, uh, of course, working very, very hard on uh, moving forward. He's, with CETA. he's it's working a good deal very, for very Europe. Hard. It's a good deal for Canada. I mean, it's uh, very, Canada. very hard. Uh, it's he said that, that several uh, times we, today. We'll uh, just file. cut him off now. He's asked, have Canadian businesses done enough to prepare for Brexit? This is a real issue. Not being asked to take a stand for or against Brexit, Britain leaving Europe. But Canadian businesses have invested an awful lot of money in Britain. It is the gateway to Europe for many of them. They set up shop in uh, Britain, and then they've got access to all of Europe. So Justin Trudeau's asked about that. 
and he just talks vaguely about Brexit and this is up to the people of Europe, doesn't even address the question. Uh, 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 uh. Then we've got Rana Ambrose. Interviewed her. You heard the whole interview now. Let's listen in on, on one short clip and compare and contrast the answers that you get from Rana Ambrose to what you get from Justin Trudeau. As legislators and public officials, it's our job to actually stand up and call things what they are and take a leadership role. And this is an issue, to me, it's an issue of moral clarity and that they weren't able to discern that, that they have a role to play in being Canada should be a leader on these issues. Ron Ambrose on genocide. Clear, concise, on point. Compared to uh, 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 Justin, what are your thoughts on this? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Uh, We had on uh, my old friend Ben Shapiro earlier today. I got to meet Ben several years ago when he was on a book tour, and I've worked with him for, I don't know, about five, six years now had him on to talk about why he is still a conservative. He still likes the Republican Party, but he is not for Donald Trump. Most people have folded up their tents and they're like, okay, I'm going with Donald. Even if I was against him before, I'm with him now. He's the nominee. Ben's one of the holdouts. Why? What kind of abuse does he get? He gets told he's not a real conservative on Twitter. And Ben is short. This is something he's, you know, he's not embarrassed by. He's not shy about. But he is mocked on Twitter with a picture of him, his head superimposed on a child's head, saying that he's a conservative, that he uh, is not tall enough to ride Donald Trump's train because he's just a little kid. He's a lefty for Hillary, he's told. That's the abuse you get when you're not on the bandwagon. What are your thoughts on that? 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility, or 1-800-580-CFRA. You got an email? It's beyond the news at CFRA.com. Chris writes in about the Donald. If Donald is, in sense, a protectionist and wants to close up the U.S., how does that make America great again? How can he force other countries to buy their goods if he wants to limit trade? Trade is the single most important part of the U.S. economy, and to limit it will drive them into deep recession. Not everyone's idea of success is working at a fast food joint. I understand what you're saying, Chris. His argument would be that the trade deals that they've got are bad, and and on some points, he's right on that. Now, as Canadians, we have to be worried because Hillary and Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have both talked about ripping up NAFTA. The American unions, we think... We don't know, but we think that Donald Trump is mostly aiming his ire at Mexico. But some of the American Union leaders want to close up the northern border as well. They have no problem with the southern border. I don't know why. It is literally, I am not one of these people that says immigration drives wages down. But when it's illegal immigration in the millions, and then employers hire those people under the table, Yeah, that does drive wages down. But the American Union movement is fine with illegal immigration, but they complain about Canada in the northern border. And so when Hillary Clinton is sounding anti-trade as well, we have to be concerned about both candidates. If I had a chance 
to ask Justin Trudeau a question today. And I was on the list, but he cut it short before they got to me. I don't know why. I'm not the moderator. But one of the things I was going to ask him about was NAFTA. He kept talking about NAFTA and how important it is for Canada. And we've got the Three Amigos Summit coming up at the end of the month. Justin Trudeau, Barack Obama, and the Mexican president. I'll have to learn his name by the end of the month. It's Enrique, and I forget. Um, NAFTA is important to Canada. When you've got both candidates being anti-trade, being protectionist, has he sought assurances from both? This, this is what I would have asked him. And, and what about Justin Trudeau's anti-Trump comments? Does he think if Trump wins, and there's a good chance he, he will win, what will that do come time to renegotiate NAFTA? How are things going to go? Is he going to be able to stand in a good position vis-a-vis Donald Trump when he has already come out against him? I mean, this is why politicians normally don't interfere in the elections of their allies, because well, the guy you don't like might win, and then you're going to have to deal with them. Obama's kind of lucky that Stephen Harper didn't win because he sent his people up to work for Justin Trudeau and the NDP. Just like he sent people to work against Benjamin Netanyahu, he sent people to work against David Cameron. Obama, don't get me started on him. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility or 1-800-580-2372. Want to hear on any of these issues, but specifically, I want to hear what you think about Ambrose versus Trudeau. You've heard them both in their communication style today. What do you think? Compare and contrast. Five to one talk. Five to one eight two five five. I'm Brian Lilly. Back in moments. Some days, the resistance verges on rebellion. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Um, uh, um, uh, um, uh. Sorry, that's my Justin Trudeau impersonation for tonight. Look, we can all do it. It's a verbal pause. Um. Um, but I'm asking your thoughts. Who's the better communicator? You've heard them both. Let's compare and contrast. Rana Ambrose versus Justin Trudeau. Thread, thread goodly Idgi, Idgi. We'll just go with Idgi on Twitter, writes, Rana, hands down, too bad she can't run, so down to earth. What are your thoughts? Well, call in now, or you can email me, beyondthenews at cfra.com. Peter in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News. Yeah, hi, Brian. Um, the contrast is pretty pretty stark. Um, it's one of uh, sort of Peter and Dupal, uh, Rona Ambrose. Uh, it sounds like she's got command of the facts. She sounds like she's got uh, the conviction of her beliefs. And I don't think I, I think Mr. Trudeau can can uh, you know do the heavy lifting on these issues if he wanted to. I think he's just uh, quite simply uh, he's just quite uh, he's quite lazy and he doesn't want to put the time in to get properly briefed on all these uh, complex files. And, and to me, that's, that's not a good sign. It really, really doesn't bode well for us because what it means is that, you know, he's bought into this sort of uh, philosophy of, oh, well, 
I'll just delegate to to all my great ministers. Well, you know what? You know, you don't really have a super A team of ministers. There is some good ones are there, other ones uh, not so good. So delegation works fine to a point, but as the CEO, as the commander in chief, whatever you want to call him, PM, he has got to have a crisp command of all the facts. Uh, some of these important files. And going, talking about Donald Trump and the uh, criticizing Clinton about the trade deals. He's right about that, and Canada also now. Well, well, hold voice. on. Criticizing Trump, he should be criticizing no, 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 both no, of Trump, them. No, Trump was very correct when he criticized the trade deals that Bill okay. uh, Clinton had passed, and then this is critical for Canada because now we're Can- uh, China is, wants to close a, a series of deals with Canada, and the Chinese are extremely good at negotiating. They've been doing it for thousands of years, but we have to really bring our A-game uh, to this uh, to this file, and I would really like to see Mr. Trudeau, you know, uh, get a good command of the facts and be able to speak like he knows what he's talking about, because it's a good inspiration for the people of the country. But on the other, on the flip side, if he's just going to be glib and sort of slide through and, I don't know, it just doesn't I, work. I, I'll, I'll tell you this, as far as uh, Justin Trudeau communicating, He's really good at delivering a speech. When he has a good speech in front of him, he can deliver like nobody else. He went out to Wee Day, and I looked and I thought, you know what? He shouldn't be prime minister. And that wasn't me being political and that, you know, I wish he didn't win saying he shouldn't be prime minister. I looked at him before this audience of kids and listened to how he spoke to them, how he related to them. And I thought, this guy should be a motivational speaker. He's good at it. It's what he did before. That's right. Now, what do you yeah, think of Ron Ambrose? Yeah, no, you're you're correct about Trudeau. His his delivery is very very good. I'm more concerned about his willingness to to do the heavy intellectual lifting to understand these files. Rona Ambrose is fantastic. I agree with most of her, you know, most of her points. My big fear is that the country of our country is slowly coming to the point now where. We are uh, handing over more and more of our responsibilities and duties to the government and letting the government take care of, of, of too many things for us. And we're losing that sense of, you know, uh, self-reliance, if you want to call it that. And you hear that in Luna Ambrose's speech. You know, uh, people want to start a business. That's great. That shows initiative. It shows uh, optimism. But the liberals come back and they drench the country in these speeches that – Big government is here to protect you and to take care of you. And by the way, we're going to take so much of your money and put you so far into debt that you won't have to worry about, you know, job payroll taxes because there won't be that much job. I mean, this is this is a slippery slope that we're heading uh, with the liberals. Look, and, and they, look at the CPP expansion, Peter. People, exactly. people actually think that it's free money. I know that this audience knows different. I know that this audience is well aware of what is actually going on. But I've talked to people who think, well, it's not going to cost me. I mean, this is good. I'll get more from the government. No, with CPP, you get in what you put in and a little bit more, not as much more as you should. And, you know, the the government has to realize, too, that they, you know, they, they're are they really going to feel good, feel good about themselves by trying to pull the wool over the public's eyes? I tell you what, you can pull the wool over the public's eyes, but that's not what leaders do. That's not what governments should do. You know, uh, we should have an honest conversation about our costs and our expenses. 
but we're just getting this uh, this you know my original point with Trudeau's uh, answers today marketing talk he's he's just coming out with marketing talk sales talk and uh, talking points and you hear that in the in the voices of the city councillors you hear it from the premier of ontario all the premiers as a matter of fact except for a couple of them it's talking points marketing patter and it's not do it's not serving the public the way that we should be respected all right thanks for the call peter I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Call in now, 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Jeremy writes in, Rana for me, run over Trudeau, Rana for me, she is a fox, and you know what the fox says? Such a pity she won't run for PM. She'd be excellent. Call in now, 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility, or 1-800-580-CFRA, CFRA or beyond the news at CFRA.com. Back in moments. To you, he's rebellious. To official Ottawa, he's disdainfully insubordinate. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. It's a fun little um, discussion going on on my Twitter feed right now. Earlier today for The Rebel, I um, shot a video where I interviewed the folks from PETA. And I thought about bringing this to you, but the show's just so packed tonight. And we always want to leave room for you to call in, room for you to have your say. But we had the Ron Ambrose interview and the Trump speech. I knew that I wanted to talk to Ben Shapiro and get his view on why as a conservative he can't back Trump. Uh, Jeffrey Johnston and that great column on how the internet is used to inoculate jihadis. And so I thought, you know, no, I'm not going to bring that. We'll leave that just for Rebel. People are having so much fun with this. Ribfest started yesterday. Yesterday or today? What day is today? Wednesday? Today's Wednesday. Okay, so I think it started today then. I get confused. And so PETA, the people for the ethical treatment of animals, showed up, and they were launching a protest. They've done this before. A few years ago, back in the the bad old Sun News days, I interviewed one of the spokespeople for PETA. I think it was the same woman, woman I interviewed today, Emily Lavender, interviewed her about their protest then. And then they had three young, good-looking women in high heels and next to nothing else. They would wear flesh-colored underwear and little pasties over their nipples. But then on their bodies, it was written, it was carved up in marker like they were a hunk of meat, like a side of beef. And so it'd be like, here's the rump roast, here's the sirloin, here's where the, the flank comes from, all of that. And it was their attempt to protest people eating meat. You know what happened? I'm there with my camera crew, and the women are behind me as I'm interviewing Emily, and all these construction workers, and a few years ago, it's just like today, downtown Ottawa is just a giant construction site. Well, they all came out to eat their lunch at noon as the near-naked women show up, and instead of it being a protest, it's just a bunch of guys sitting around eating meat 
looking at near naked women. I don't think it had the intended effect. So today, and you can find this uh, interview I did on Twitter, they brought out not three. Last time it was three. This time it was just one. One woman who was nearly naked. Same thing again. Uh, But they laid her out across a barbecue with a sign underneath that said, Meat is murder. All that did was remind me of a 1980s album from The Smiths. Didn't make me think, well, I'm not going to go get ribs after. Um, I'm going to give up the pulled pork. Pulled pork tastes good. But anyway, that interview, it's up on Twitter right now. Uh, If you go to my Twitter feed, you'll not only find the interview and the video, but you will find some hilarious comments on um, this woman lying across the barbecue. Lloyd in Lacombe, Alberta is calling in all the way from Lacombe, Lloyd. Thanks for the call. Hey, Brian. Uh, Yeah, I just saw your uh, prompt on Twitter there about who's the better communicator. Yeah, and and Uh, who do you pick? Well, it depends on what you mean by better. If you're somebody who knows the issues in the files, then Rona Ambrose. Okay. If you're a low-information voter who's impressed by platitudes and kiss curls, then I guess it's Justin Trudeau. (laughs) So style over substance? They're both stylish, attractive people, though? Well, yes, they're both stylish and attractive, but one of them is like kind of an empty vessel. You know, I was really getting that today, and I and I am not one of these people that says Justin Trudeau's dumb, Justin Trudeau doesn't know anything. I warned conservatives, and I, I said on these airwaves Justin Trudeau would be the next prime minister. I said, I mean, that was years before the, the last election. I said, it doesn't mean he's going to win in 2015. It just means if Stephen Harper wins in 2015, Justin Trudeau will beat him next time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I've been warning conservatives. You cannot assume that this guy's stupid. But today he did sound like, you know, he was the ventriloquist dummy. He was just spewing out platitudes, as you say. He wasn't sitting there saying, you know, okay, on on the CF-18s, here's where I stand, here's what I'm thinking. He was putting out talking points on Brexit. He was putting out talking points on dealing with NATO and security issues. Talking points, but no substance. Well, he's an actor, uh, and he's a good actor. He's very suave and debonair. And uh, I mean, I really loved his uh, pirate face there, his Johnny Depp face. <laughs> you know, you're talking when he had the the longer hair and the little soul patch on his chin. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, the ladies loved it. <laughs> and uh, you know, I guess it worked for him, right? It, well, uh, it did. I, I remember during the last election uh, sparring with some people on Twitter, and, and one young fellow told me, well, it's about time we had a hip prime minister. As if hip is really a good thing that, you know, a qualification for being prime minister. It's kind of the state where we at, and, and that's why they uh, they <clears throat> cater to the, to the younger voters. Uh, the millennials like them. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I talked to one. How much damage he does in the next three years? Uh, I'm afraid lots, and he's already done lots. I, I spoke with one MP from Vancouver that lost in the last election, conservative, who uh, said that uh, the people were calling in from her campaign who were poll monitors saying, uh, there's an awful lot of people under 30 with blue hair here. You know, if it was people over 50, over 60 with blue hair, then the conservatives would be winning. But under 30 with blue hair, 
they felt that it was the the pot vote showing up. Uh, Lloyd, let me ask you this. I have never been to Lacombe. I've been uh, to Edmonton. I've been to Red Deer, but I have not traveled that distance along Highway 2 between Edmonton and Red Deer to visit Lacombe. Uh, tell me about your beautiful town. Uh, actually, I'm not from here. I'm a contractor from Calgary who's been living here for the last eight months working on the hail damage that uh, happened here last year. Oh, wow. Okay. I'll be, it, yeah. That much damage that it's taken you eight months? Uh, yeah, uh, we're just winding down our operations here, uh, and this is from last year's storm. Well, I, uh, about, I guess December 2014, flew out to Red Deer for an event with Ezra Levant, and uh, we we landed in Calgary just ahead of a snowstorm, and then drove through the snowstorm from Calgary to Red Deer. Uh, only about half of the the people that had bought tickets showed up. That's how bad the snowstorm was, but it was still a, a great event out there. It, love your hometown of Calgary, though. Can't get enough of it. Enjoy Stampede if you get there. Uh, yeah, well, I'm going home here tomorrow or the next day. I think we're just about done here. All right. All the best. Thanks for the call. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Take care. 521-TALK, 521-8255, star 580 on Bell Mobility. Have you been out to Alberta? It's absolutely stunning. I, I remember... This is before even you, Ezra, all that well. Um, This is when I was bureau chief for News Talk 1010 and CJAD, now our sister stations in Toronto and Montreal. And what they used to do for me was in an election, I flew with the prime minister. But the election was over Thanksgiving weekend in 2008. So they said, you know what? Nobody's going to listen. We're not paying for you to be out on the campaign trail. We'll fly you out Sunday night of Thanksgiving weekend. Oh, great. Yay. Eat dinner early. Leave everyone. Fly out. But I flew out late on the Sunday of Thanksgiving. But that meant I had two days with my buddies from the station just to explore the area around Calgary. We took a drive up to Canmore. And like I said, I I didn't know Ezra all that well, but I emailed him on the drive back from Canmore and said, why do you people leave Alberta? It is stunning. Of course, I've been there in the winter since, and now I know why they sometimes leave Alberta. 521-TALK, 521-8255. Ian writes in via email at beyondthenews at CFRA.com. This is, uh, he says, Obama et al. If it were up to people like Obama, Trudeau, and Wynn, the whole world would be run by liberals until the end of days. As for Trudeau's substance, he has nothing of substance to say, and it's a sad commentary on the intelligence of Canadians that they are still giving him such a high approval rating. Well, it's partly a, a comment on, or commentary on Canadians, but it's also a commentary on the media, Ian, because the media doesn't report bad things about Trudeau. Yes, they reported the elbow. They couldn't, couldn't possibly ignore the elbow. But they can ignore an awful lot of other things, like ministers standing up and lying, in the House of Commons. Yes, I'm looking at you, John McCallum. Uh, Dave in Ottawa, you're on Beyond the News. Okay, I might be up against the uh, middle of the quarter of the half hour, but um, well, all the way for Ambrose winning. And here's why she sounds like she knows and understands the experience of the people that, that she's leading or referring to, and Trudeau definitely does not. I'll give you some examples. 
I moved from Newfoundland about 30 years ago, and the first job I took was cutting grass in a, in a, in a project at not less than minimum wage. I worked for student wage, a man of 35 years of age, because that's the first job I could lay my hands on to start buying some food right away. I well, came, I mean, I you shouldn't have done now. that, Dave. Well, okay, I came with my last unemployment check in my pocket, and that was it. Whether I should, I was looking for the work. I just needed some money right away, quickly, and that's what I, that's what I did. I, I did move on, of course. But uh, does any of Trudeau's friends ever had that experience? Any members of his family? Any of his school chums? I doubt it. And the house I live in is worth about $170,000 on the market. It's not a big, fancy house. I look across the street, and I see people with for sale signs. They can't keep the houses. Does Tudor ever look out the front of his house wherever he lived and see people in that circumstance? I think not. He talks to talk about how he believes in the middle class, and he understands the frustrations and the concerns and the worries. He knows nothing about it. He just says he does, and, and uh, I don't have enough venom in me to say more about that. Well, I'll tell you this, Dave. I can relate to what it's like. I arrived in Ottawa on the first bus after the snow, uh, the ice storm in 98. Do you remember when they, they shut down all transportation well, here, yeah. in and out? Here. Yeah. So I, I came in on the first bus from Toronto. I'd, I'd taken the GO bus in from Hamilton, then got on the, the Voyager bus up to here. I literally think I had $5 in my pocket. Came up for a job interview, convinced if I go... I'll get the job. I had family to stay with here. So I knew, okay, well, I'll I'll at least get fed and I can walk everywhere I need to go until that first check comes in. And that was what I did because that's what I had to do. Exactly. And that's what I did too. And and I've done it time and again. And I get that impression from talking to him from many other people, but I don't get that kind of impression from Trudeau. He doesn't know anything about the struggles of the average Canadian and what we worry about from time to time. Absolutely nothing. He can talk to talk, but he's never walked the walk, and he can only talk to talk because he's fed some lines to say. That's all. I, um, I, I still believe I hold the record for the number of times that I've interviewed uh, former Prime Minister Stephen Harper I, I, as a sitting Prime Minister. Um, and, but I remember in the middle of the recession interviewing him, and he made reference to friends losing jobs. And I thought, really? Again, and I, 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 I was speaking that. to, but I was speaking to some of his his friends and staffers after the fact, and they said, no, yep, he's got he has personal friends that he sees in his time off that were laid off. They weren't CEOs; they were normal middle class people that lost their jobs in the middle of the recession, and. Jean Chrétien's the little guy from Schwinnigan. Look, he made it up from nothing to where he is. Good on him. I actually respect Chrétien for that. But when he got to the top, he wasn't hanging out with little guys from Schwinnigan anymore. No. He was hanging out with the Demarais. Uh Justin Trudeau, same sort of thing. You know, where where is his middle class connection? Where if times get tough, his friends are going to lose their jobs. I'm not sure that it's there. It's not. We, we both know it's not. Don't be not sure. We both know it's not. And that's why I, when you talk that about Stephen Harper, I do believe you. Because you, 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 you can listen to a man's soul when you hear him talk. And you can understand whether he, he's bullcrapping or not. Well, hopefully I'm not bullcrapping you, Dave. No, you weren't, and, I, and I'm not doing the same to you. I, we, and I, I know that uh, Stephen Harper, when he talks like that, I, and I believe Rona Ambrose the same way, and lots of others, but I don't believe it about Trudeau. Thanks Thank for the call. So All right. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. Back in moments.
Every revolution starts with a rebel. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. <laughs> Some of you are cruel on Twitter. Andrea tweets on my comment or uh, question about who is the better communicator, Ambrose or Trudeau. She writes, um, we um, need to look at um, the root cause of the, um, the uh, question. Um, uh, Lazarus writes, give us a tougher choice, which is the better communicator. And then he has a picture of Trudeau and a picture of a cat Buddha statue. Uh, Iggy writes, uh, too bad she won't, com- uh, won't, can't run. She has it all. Her compassion is pure. I like that comment. I'm going to play, let's round out the show with this. We're going to play clips again. Ron Ambrose reacting to my question about genocide. As legislators and public officials, it's our job to actually stand up and call things what they are and take a leadership role. And this is an issue To me, it's an issue of moral clarity and that they weren't able to discern that, that they have a role to play in being Canada should be a leader on these issues. So it wasn't until some, well, it wasn't even the first report from the United Nations that called this genocide. There's been subsequent, there's been consecutive reports around the genocide. But but two days after your vote, there was a 40-page report that said it's genocide against Yazidis. So they say yes to Yazidis, but no to Christians and Shias. Right. And so, you know what? It's, it's well, a lack of principled foreign policy, and it's they, a lack of leadership. They like to say Canada's back, and they keep going down to the United Nations right. and saying Canada's back. Well, if we no. have to wait for the United Nations to tell us what our mm-hmm. policy is, is Canada back, or is Canada now outsourcing foreign policy to Geneva and New York? I think that's what it means. I think it means... Canada's back, letting the United Nations make our decisions. All right. Patricia writes uh, on Twitter, no contest. Ron Ambrose is number one on communication. And let's see. There's an awful lot of comments about this PETA thing. Alberta Proud writes, I um, think um, Justin Trudeau is um, the worst um, communicator. Now, he was asked a question about the whole issue of the elbow. Tonda McCharles from the Toronto Red Star asked, what was going through your mind when you walked across to, to grab conservative MP Gord Brown and elbow Ruth Ellen Brasso? Not a bad answer on this one. One of the few good answers that he gave today. I think uh, you've all heard me uh, uh, apologize and take uh, responsibility for what was a mistake. And that's what people uh, expect of each other and it's what they should expect of their leaders that when you make a mistake you own up to it you uh, recognize it and you work very hard to uh, learn from it and move forward and make restitution if necessary Uh, and I think uh, we can certainly note that uh, as uh, the house rose uh, last week the tone was significantly more positive we managed to work together on a number of issues, whether it's uh, launching the Electoral Reform Committee that's going to get to work throughout the summer, uh, whether it was a level of collaboration uh, within the House and even uh, with the Senate on uh, passing the medical assistance in dying legislation. Uh, I think people have noticed that uh, we uh, are working very hard to continue to live up to the high expectations that Canadians Uh, have of this government and of parliamentarians in general and uh, are not above, uh, you know, acknowledging when we've made mistakes and working to fix them. 
Not a bad answer, but still a lot of the uh, 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 uh. Last clip goes to Donald Trump tonight, speaking about the difference between himself and Hillary Clinton comes down to viewpoint. The choice in this election is a choice between taking our government back from the special interests or surrendering really the last scrap of independence to the total and complete control of people like the Clintons. Those are the stakes. Hillary Clinton wants to be president, but she doesn't have the temperament or, as Bernie Sanders said very strongly, the judgment to be president. She does not have the judgment. She believes... She believes she's entitled to the office. Her campaign slogan is, I'm with her. You know what my response is to that? I'm with you, the American people. And with that, we'll wrap the show for tonight. Donald Trump saying, I'm with you. It's kind of like what I say. I like to say I'm on your side, so remember that each and every night. You can drop me a line. It's beyond the news at CFRA.com or email me. Uh, sorry, beyond the news at CFRA.com is the email address. Facebook, it's Facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Twitter, Twitter.com slash Brian, uh, Brian Lilly. Make sure that you share what you see, share what you like, because it's the only way the truth is going to get out there. And the truth is has no agenda.